Hello and welcome to episode four of the Challenge of Behaviour Change podcast. I'm Dr Emma Davis and in this podcast series I've been talking to researchers to find out about important considerations when we're thinking about designing behaviour change interventions. We're at the stage now of considering modes of delivery. In the previous episode I spoke to Dr Catherine Wheatley about a large face-to-face intervention trial and we learned about lots of challenges that were involved in delivering this intervention. So one big issue that was faced there was fidelity. So this is the idea of how to ensure the intervention is delivered as planned. And digital tools may be a way to overcome this issue. So if we use an app, for example, we know it's going to do the same thing every time for everybody that presses the buttons in a certain way. But before you go and think, right, that's it, I'm going to definitely develop an app, then it's really important to consider some issues that Dr Nikki Newhouse, my guest today, is going to tell us about. She's got lots of expertise in the world of digital health and she's going to give us lots of information and food for thought in this area. Hello, Um, so yes, I'm Dr Nikki Newhouse and I am a qualitative methodologist with a background in psychology. Uh, I have a primary research interest in human-computer interaction, in particular the development and evaluation of complex digital health interventions to support physical and psychological well-being across the lifespan. I, um, I work in the Department of Primary Care at the University of Oxford and I use qualitative and participatory design methods to explore how people use and importantly don't use technology kind of in real life and I work extensively with the Primary Care Clinical Trials Unit. Fantastic. So today I'm going to be talking to you a little bit about um, digital health and I'm asking <laughs> your expertise in that really. And um, I, first of all, like, the question I'm asking all of my guests is to tell me why they think changing behaviour is so difficult. Have you got any <laughs> reflections for that, on that for our for Oh our gosh, well, as a qualitative methodologist, my first response to that is that changing people and their behavior is complicated because well we're people aren't we and we are complicated we don't do as we're told we don't do what we're supposed to do for all sorts of um, weird and wonderful reasons and I was thinking about this kind of in preparation for our chat today and so at the moment I work particularly for example in the context of supporting people to take uh, tablet medication in the context of type 2 diabetes And I was just thinking about sort of what is it and like, why are we doing this work? Why are we trying to help people do something that in theory is a really simple, straightforward behavior? And why is it difficult? And again, what comes out from my kind of reflections on that is that, yeah, people are really complicated and that routines can be really hard to stick to. But then on top of that, there's all the stuff that's really kind of important for the specific context of the behavior that you're trying to, in inverted commas, change which is that for example people don't like admitting that they have a condition in particular that one that is really widely stigmatized in the press something like type 2 diabetes and again with diabetes it's a uh, an invisible condition which doesn't sort of make itself particularly apparent until you stop taking your medications or you alter them and you start to suffer and so it's sort of the idea of changing people's behavior is it sounds deceptively simple but actually it's incredibly complicated and understanding the context around it is the thing that is really super important. Great answer, yeah, we're incredibly complex and I think that the 
situation we find ourselves in with lockdown recently has really demonstrated that to us all. So that's a really nice answer. Thank you. <laughs> um, I just want to briefly ask you about the PhD that you completed recently. So you were interested in looking at potential of uh, digital resources to sort to help um, support well-being in first-time pregnancy. Could you tell us a little bit about that and what you made you think that digital resources might be um, useful in that context? Sure, of course. Um, okay, so pregnancy is, as you can probably imagine, a time of kind of intense information seeking, particularly in first-time pregnancy. And we live in an age of, you know, information overload where women have never been so informed about pregnancy and processes and babies and uh, clothes and toys and developmental stuff. And yet the proportion of women who report clinical levels of postnatal anxiety has never been higher. And critically, it's largely attributed to, they des women describe this kind of anxiety and um, kind of real discomfort after birth as being attributed to sort of having not felt prepared despite having had all this access to so much information. So just thinking about kind of the concept of behavior change, I wasn't really interested in changing people's behavior so much in a kind of paternalistic way. Mm. But what I was really interested in doing was seeing as if, if we could kind of harness what's already happening, like an existing behavior in terms of being online all the time. And so we could harness that kind of existing information seeking behavior to, and tailor it to see what women wanted and actually what they needed to know to help them feel more prepared when they gave birth. So I can imagine there's so many sources of information. It's about kind of what's the most reliable, what's going to make me feel more supported, what's going to make you feel less anxious. And maybe having all that in one place might be quite, um, quite encouraging for people. Exactly. Yeah. And there was the principle behind it was about getting women to work with me and with each other to kind of co-design a resource that was going to work for them. So that meant working not just with pregnant women to talk about hypothetically what they thought they would need, but specifically talking with quite recently postnatal women about what they used in, say, late pregnancy and then what they actually needed. They found mm. that they needed which, which wasn't out there or which they hadn't been sort of um, directed to because you know, the digital pathway when it comes to antenatal care is pretty ropey in that women want to be told by their midwife what are the good resources out there and the fact mm. is, is that most midwives don't know for all sorts of good reasons and not so good reasons they just don't know and so in terms of evaluating like you said that massive stuff that's out there and also preparing women for what they can't possibly know they're going to need to know <laughs> is a really complicated thing so that's why it was really important to sort of not just think about hypothetical engagement with um, digital resources but actually what did women use in reality when they had a problem at three o'clock in the morning with their two-week-old baby and what was reassuring and what did they need and what they're looking for and what was missing okay yeah that sounds really really important because i guess the problem i guess when you said at the start you know there's a lot more information out there and there's mm. a lot more kind of um places to look but i guess 
people maybe still don't know what to expect because the information may be of varying quality or from maybe not necessarily trustworthy or evidence-based resources so that sounds like a really important thing as well um so why do you think i mean this isn't the only area where there's been a huge explosion of interest in the use of digital tools i mean in my research area around um, managing alcohol reduction there's also huge explosion in digital tools and many other health behaviors as well why do you think um there's been such a rise in the interest here and what other kind of advantages might there be yeah it's fascinating isn't it how um so pregnancy in particular but also generally health apps are the biggest group of apps uh, out there on any given app store and there's a real, I think there's a really simple reason for that, actually, in many, well, in many ways it is deceptively simple, which is that I do think that people, by and large, want to look after themselves and feel good. Doing it is difficult and knowing how to do it is difficult. But I think that kind of generally people want to live a good life. And digital tools fundamentally offer, you know, a low cost, familiar, agile, scalable way for healthcare professionals to deliver information and for people to access information and to gather data and monitor our own health and our moods and behaviors and so on. And digital tools are great because they provide access to care and information where perhaps there isn't any, uh, like for example, in a rural uh, setting or in a low middle income country, that kind of thing. And it also provides access when it might be uh, to do with say a condition that's stigmatized, such as mental health, any kind of um, you know, acute care uh, setting. So it's kind of, well, it's difficult to access care as well. Digital tools really do sort of come into their own. And this, it's, it's really interesting how, I'm not quite sure which came first, our interest or with the policy kind of, you know, which one drives which, but it ties in perfectly with the, the health policy that we have in this country around kind of patient activation, they call it, or self-management, the importance of sort of taking responsibility for your own well-being. And so there's a kind of double push. There's a commercial push that says, here's this really good looking app. You can use it to monitor your walking, for example. And there's also the kind of healthcare side of it, which is saying, great, use this app to monitor your walking because it's part of what we want you to do to look after yourself. So there's this huge sort of... Um, uh, parallel sort of um, growth going on from mm. all sides and don't forget that also developing an app like a bog standard app or a bog standard website is just super easy these days you know coding is pushed massively as a part of the school curriculum and there's also the idea that's quite I think seductive that um, there's money <laughs> to be made <laughs> in app development or behavior change um, digital tools you know plot twist here spoiler there really isn't um, and, you know, because all of that sort of not, you know, when I was signing digital applications for personal use, like rather than IT systems, they're really, really great. They really do do a fantastic job. I mean, there are massive caveats. I know we're going to come on to that in a bit, mm. but they just provide a brilliant, quick, easy access to information and data, you know, at the tip of your finger, basically, if you want it. Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds fantastic, doesn't it? I mean, mm. it sounds as if we've got the power in the palm of our hands, essentially, to bring exactly. about all positive changes to our and health that we need. And we can save exactly. money for the NHS, probably. Hundreds of people. Yeah, to do it for <laughs> hundreds of people, thousands of people yeah. in one go. You, know, you don't have to have an appointment. You can just click a button and bingo. It's kind of like your dosage of digital information is there in the palm of your hand. Right, I mean, the word you used was seductive, and I liked that a lot. It is, but... Um, what have you learned about some of the sort of less uh, desirable 
things about digital health or some of the disadvantages? <laughs> so, yeah, I'm definitely not. Okay, I might have a PhD in computer science, but I'm definitely not a computer scientist in the sense that I definitely don't subscribe to the view that there's, you know, there's an app for that kind of uh, approach, that there's always a digital solution. I've been lucky enough to work across a number of digital health projects and the field is undoubtedly super exciting and when it gets it right it does it right in such wonderful ways and there are some great examples of digital projects that, that do amazing work but I'd say that the field is inherently really problematic and for me the problems kind of focus around I guess four kind of key things the first being interdisciplinary team working and up until quite recently, really, um, the approach to developing digital health interventions has been quite linear and was always sort of uh, judged by uh, the standards that we would use for evaluating um, pharmaceutical interventions, so pills, using randomised control trials, that kind of stuff. And there's a real problem with that because that sort of evidence-based gold standard approach doesn't really work for digital health. And so you've had to sort of incorporate attitudes and disciplinary norms from other fields such as human computer interaction or computer um, such as uh, you know software development which is much more messy and much more iterative and to combine those two ways of working is really really difficult so that has been I guess my take-home message from the past kind of four years of work or well, seven years of working for digital stuff which is that a you need an interdisciplinary team but my god you need to get it right you need to work hard to make it right the second thing is kind of tied to that which is around what does evidence look like when it comes to digital health so evaluation of digital health products is this ongoing enormous challenge so again the kind of uh, behavioral sciences work in this linear way which kind of culminates in a very uh, static formative one-off trial uh, sorry, sorry summative uh, one-off trial whereas the more messy hci approaches are much more sort of you know formative and they look at um, what people think and how people use stuff and what do people do when, you know, how do people use things rather than the behavioral science approach, which is the evidence is just whether it's effective and whether it works, whether it changes the behavior. I'm being a bit sort of crude about it. It's obviously not that polar opposite, but evidence is a very subtle and important thing in the field of digital. Also some really big problems around um, usage and engagement. So yes. we know that, for example, uh, digital adoption uh, in the UK is really actually very uneven. There are six million people in the UK who've never been online. And they're also likely to be the same people that need the services that they need to access, not digitally, you know. Yeah. Um, we know that, for example, for digital tool to work, people have to actually use it. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> but, um, engagement is incredibly challenging. We like to think of uh, people engaging with our uh, digital tool because they love it but in fact actually a dosage of your digital kind of intervention could be just a one-off or it could be a prolonged kind of you know lengthy long-term thing and it's very hard to design for that without knowing well you, you never really know what which one you're designing for actually in reality because pe people again are complicated and what works once uh, is once is enough for one person, another person will need 10 doses of the same thing. So there's all kinds of complicated things. Um, I would say also the critical thing here is that 
we don't know how to often we don't know how to interpret the data and the information we're given so like you were saying before that evaluation of, of information is difficult because you don't know what's good quality you don't know uh, where it comes from who to trust and what we're very good at is designing things that look pretty that look snazzy but they end up just scaring the hell out of us, for example. So you're given information about your heart rate or you're given information about your sleep and your recovery, for example. And all that ends up happening you know, pre-COVID was that we had people so-called worried well ending up at the GP um, surgery, panicking about what their smartwatch had told them. <laughs> so there's a really big difference between giving people information and knowing what to do with the information you've been given. And that's one thing that I think digital tools uh, kind of irresponsibly forget. <laughs> but people yeah. forget when they use them, that they, they can induce panic. And the final thing I would say is what I call um, greed and speed. <laughs> so there's this rush to you know, develop an app because an app is good and an app will fix everything. And this idea of quality control means that basically we have developed a load of apps that have flooded the market that are just useless. They don't do anything. They're never going to do anything. They haven't been developed properly. They haven't got any kind of academic evidence behind them and they just don't work, but they look, they look cute. So, and there's a lot of stuff out there that I won't name anything, but there are some very big, very, very well used applications that have absolutely no evidence that they yeah. work behind them, but people still use them because everyone else does. <laughs> absolutely yeah it's almost like well if you've got an issue with this you, you need this type of app off you go everything's completely fine with you now <laughs> and i kind of like that idea i mean germany have started doing that recently they started doing sort of digital prescriptions and i really like the idea it's a bit like social prescribing which is also yeah. super kind of popular and gaining traction in the uk in particular at the moment and i love the idea that you can be prescribed something that isn't you know pharmacological it's actually much more holistic so the idea that yeah. you can be prescribed some kind of therapeutic intervention that involves being outdoors for example or that you as in germany can be prescribed something that's online is fantastic because it kind of taps into everything that's out there in the world already that we can make use of but when it comes to digital you know we have a real problem with knowing what's good and what's not and i have to say though that if people are interested in this that go to the public health england website soon to be not public health england website mm -hmm. um they have done some incredibly good work around evaluation and how do you evaluate digital health tools rapidly in the context of say covid for example but also uh it, there's a huge piece of work there with lots of really really uh, neat and tidy breakdowns of different ways of evaluating digital health products and how they work and why you would use this one over this one and they're really really good it's just really nice kind of uh, attention to detail thinking about quality brilliant yeah that's really interesting what you're saying about social prescribing because i mean this isn't obviously happening at the moment due to where we are with covid at the time of recording but things like um volunteering or attending park run was was um something that some yeah. gp practices are getting on board with and things like that but i think yeah. the problem now is when we've got like reduced access to those settings it's tempting to say well, we've got to do everything somehow 
through everybody's phone oh, and then exactly, and yeah. it'll all be fine you know like we're doing like not park runs and it's just not the same it's just going for a run on your own it's like fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. great I mean where's the, the, the point of that but um but no that's really insightful and thank you for pointing us towards the, the resources as well have you got any other sort of final messages because what um I mean this module is now in its fourth year and a lot of the time students um once they get to the point of thinking about their method of delivering their chosen behavior change techniques to their chosen population they've already sort of thought oh it's going to be an app so do you have any sort of final thoughts on that yeah that's really interesting because um i was thinking about how you know at every stage of people's careers i think there's a there's a real kind of push towards i must develop something digital so i would think that yeah basically when it comes to any kind of intervention i think the whole the holy grail as i see it is that uh, you want to understand what works how and for who and it's only by understanding what works how and for who that you can actually develop and evaluate something that fundamentally is effective and is used and you know all of those beautiful things kind of come into alignment so i would say that first and foremost you really have to think very carefully about what is your research question and why do you think a digital method is appropriate Mm. Um, do you have evidence to support that opinion you know and that can be academic evidence in terms of you know doing a literature review and it can also be uh, your clinical evidence if you come from clinical background it could also be just simply your own lived experience mm. that you know that from um, a condition that which doesn't have to be a condition that you you know suffer with it can be a, a context any kind of behavior change uh, application that we're talking about here if you have experience of something that you know uh, and have a good strong idea that uh, a, a digital tool could support you in that, then that's also, you know, a hunch is good enough, but it's always better to have a clearly defined research gap that suggests digital is good. If you do feel that the evidence is saying, yes, go digital, then I would always say aim to do the bare minimum. Um, absolutely do not go bells and whistles, you know, sexy app. Uh, it's very much about involving target users from the start. Um, people who are going to be the people that you want to use your tool um, in conjunction with a really strong idea of what you think your mechanisms of action are likely to be. So basically how and why you're going to get your user from A to B. And mm. um, I was kind of introduced to the concept of logic models and mechanisms of action and causal pathways in a very kind of low, <laughs> very low key way, <laughs> not a sort of formal. I didn't do a behavior change PhD. I did a, a kind of a motivational theory, if you like, PhD. I was looking to change women's behaviors, looking to sort of think about the circumstances to change motivation. However, thinking about how you're going to conceptualize your user getting from the problem to your intended outcome is a really important way of making sure that you don't just um, kind of throw everything in the behavior change toolkit mm. online <laughs> in the form of an app. Yeah. It's a really important way of kind of compartmentalizing your work. So I like to think of it as sort of you have your problem, you have the next chain, the next step in the chain is your contributing factors, and then you have the next bit of how would you address them, and the next bit is sort of your intended outcomes. And that way you can kind of break it break the the pathway to delivery if you like down into chunks and you can see sort of where your idea works where it doesn't work what you need to change and how and you have a real kind of rationale for each step of the process and it means that if it doesn't work 
you can identify where in the chain it didn't work rather than just sort of binning the whole thing and start <laughs> again. So it's a really nice little way of sort of being systematic and clear and kind of descriptive about your work in a way that isn't just about let's, do let's design a really kind just of cool looking app. <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a really nice thing to finish on. So in the module, the students are guided by the behaviour change wheel, which has a series of systematic steps yep. to which they'll go through. So they'll be really, really thinking about their behaviour in a lot of detail and really analysing some of the, the reasons why people may do or not do that particular behaviour. And Brilliant. then only at the end of that process will they be able to really fully consider with lots of thought and lots of analysis and lots of evidence about the right way that they think should be um, the way to deliver those particular um behavior change techniques so that's a really Great. lovely way to finish your um <laughs> discussion nikki thank you it's almost like you read in my mind oh um, of course <laughs> so that's great thank you so much for your time um so nikki introduced me to a really lovely video about digital tools which i'm going to put in this week's um page on moodle which is about um the sort of really illustrates the pros and cons from the perspective of, a, of an elderly gentleman who's got lots of Ooh, digital yeah. tools in his house it's a lovely video so i credit you with with showing me where that was and showing <laughs> me the video and i think the students will really enjoy that so thank you so much for your time today nikki so and um, that's fantastic I hope you enjoyed listening to my interview with Nikki Newhouse. I think there were so many interesting things that she told us about. She said, people are complicated, we don't do as we're told, and routines are hard to stick to. And I know that's something that a lot of you have identified when you've been thinking in depth about your behaviours that you wanted to change. And Nikki told us there were a number of key considerations in the world of digital health that were sort of challenges that she'd come across. Firstly, this idea of interdisciplinary team working. Of course, you need to work with people who know how to design apps, and we don't necessarily have that sort of skill set. Our skill set is coming in the in the psychology realm isn't it and people have different ideas and different sets of assumptions and coming from different disciplines Nikki also told us how evaluation was really difficult and that's definitely the case it's certainly something that we've come across in our own research she also highlighted the really important issue of engagement which I talked about in the lecture and she told us uh, not to forget that six million people in the UK have not been online and that they might be the people who might most benefit from particular interventions that we're developing so I thought that was a really good point that she brought out um, and she also talked about this idea of greed and speed, as she puts it, quality control. So there's loads of apps out there, as we said in the lecture, but not all of them do anything. You know, most of them don't. They don't have any specific evidence behind them, any behaviour change techniques. Um, you know, they might look nice, <laughs> as Nikki said. Um, and she gave us lots of tips and ideas and, and places to, to look for information, including uh, Public Health England, for example, um, which I think was really nice of her to share all that expertise. And the other thing that she did mention, which I thought was really important to, to draw out at the end, is that she talked about you know, thinking about your experience. Maybe you've got experience in the area that you're thinking about changing and that's potentially why you're motivated to do it and maybe you know that um, experience is enough to kind of make the decision that this mode of delivery is better over that mode of delivery. Mm -hmm.